0: volume two chapter two of willard sweared by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by lynn thompson chapter two after the inquest there was great excitement in Bobmin on the afternoon of the inquest a delicious summer afternoon which seemed made for quiet arcadian joys an afternoon to be spent in day-dreams under forest boughs or drifting lazily adown a placid stream rather than for gathering together in a stifling tavern parlour listening to the droning accents of a police constable or the confused statements and innocent prevarications of a railway porter but it may be that the inhabitants of bodmin had drunk their fill of the cup of pastoral joys that they had had more than enough of heathery moorland and foxglove-bordered lane dog-rose and honeysuckle waving boughs and winding streams and this satiety made them flock to the little inn beyond bodmin road station where they elbowed and hustled one another in the endeavour to get a good view of the coroner and the witnesses an inquest was not in itself such a thrilling event there had been inquests held in bodmin which inspired neither curiosity nor excitement in the mind of the town but this inquiry of today interested everybody who could tell what mystery what story of falsehood and wrong had gone before that sad strange death the report had gone about that the victim was a foreigner and this gave a deeper note to the mystery why had she come to that spot to kill herself or who had lured her there to murder her these were the questions which were discussed in bodmin freely that fair july morning questions which gave birth to various wise and abstruse theories every one of which seemed to the inventor thereof a most plausible explanation of this dark problem in human history If anybody can throw light upon the business Squire Heathcote is the man to do it said mr. Bate grocer General dealer and churchwarden Edward Heathcote was one of the most popular men within ten miles of Bodmin He was a native of the soil had been known to the neighborhood from his childhood He came of a race that was held in high honor Which had produced men famous with sword and gown in the days that were gone honor courage and all generous feelings were supposed to run in the blood of the Heathcotes He had succeeded to a small estate and a fine old grange in which his forefathers had lived from generation to generation In the deepest night of past ages there had been heathcoats in the land Thus albeit he was by no means a rich man as compared with Julian Willard He stood higher than the wealthy financier in the esteem of those good old conservatives who held that money is not everything Mr. Willard was a newcomer, had bought Penmorval just before his marriage, choosing this part of the world for his residence, because Theodora Dalmain loved it, rather than for any leaning of his own. He was known to have made the greater part of his money himself—a low thing for a man to have done. Even commercial fortunes become hallowed after they have filtered from father to son for three or four generations thus although he was altogether the most important personage in the neighbourhood and belonged to the landed gentry by right of recent purchase there were people who looked upon julian Willard as a parvenu and who were somewhat disposed to resent the weight which his wealth gave him in local affairs squire heathcote was said to be the best coroner who had filled that office at bodmin within the memory of the oldest inhabitant his legal experiences had been of a wider range than those of the average provincial solicitor He had served his articles to a well-known London firm He had traveled a good deal and had seen men and cities He had been brought into close relations with his fellow men under manifold conditions And he was said to be a marvelous reader of character an impartial and clear-headed judge on more than one occasion he had shown an acumen rarely met with at a rural inquest, and he had disentangled more than one knotted skein. It was argued, therefore, that if any one could unravel the mystery of the dead girl's fate, Squire Heathcote was the man to do it. Nothing could be quieter or less pretentious than his manner as he took his seat at the head of the long table in the parlor of the vital spark. But there were signs of anxiety or emotion in the somber fire of the deep-set gray eyes and the nervous movement of the sunburnt hand Which played with his dark chestnut beard He sat for some minutes looking down at his notes and then slowly raised his eyes and surveyed the room which was quite full Julian Willard was sitting near the opposite end of the table with little dr. Menheniot by his side Bothwell Graham was seated apart from them and nearer the jury he had a haggard look mr Heathcote thought as of a man who had passed a troubled night There were three or four railway officials present and these were the principal witnesses first came the guard on the down train from Paddington whose evidence was meager since it appeared that he had only seen the dead girl standing on the footboard a moment before she fell She was standing on the footboard and clinging to the handrail with her face to the coach She seemed to be talking to someone inside It had not seemed to him that she threw herself off the footboard. It had seemed rather as if she had dropped off Was it your impression that she was thrown off asked Heathcote? No, sir. I can't say that was my impression But the whole thing was too quick for me to have a very clear idea either way my first thought was how I could save her I had only just stepped out upon the footboard when she gave a shriek and fell She was at the farther end of the train before I could get to the carriage from which she had fallen the engine had slackened and the passengers were getting out Did you find the carriage out of which she fell yes, sir? There was an empty second-class next but one to the engine I believe that was the compartment there was a little basket with some refreshments and a newspaper, which I believe belonged to the deceased. The basket was on the table. It had a foreign look, a poor little basket containing a few cherries in a cabbage leaf and a little bag of biscuits. The newspaper was the French Figaro. The coroner handed the basket to the jury, who examined the contents curiously. There was no scrap of writing, no card or old letter nothing to identify the dead girl or to indicate the place from which she had come her clothes and the contents of her pocket have been examined said mr heathcote in reply to a question from one of the jury but no mark or clue has been found nor has any luggage belonging to her been discovered which is curious since it is not often that anyone travels from london to cornwall without luggage I Have communicated with the london police and i have sent an advertisement to the times and to a parisian newspaper Perhaps by this means we shall discover the girl's identity in the meantime the question is how did she come by her death? The next witness was a porter from the Plymouth station who had taken notice of the girl there while the train waited He had seen her on the platform alone He was sure that he had not seen her speak to anybody She walked up and down the platform two or three times and he thought she looked puzzled and anxious as if she expected to meet somebody who had not come He was too busy looking after people's luggage to watch her closely, but he had noticed her because she looked like a foreigner He saw her get into a second-class compartment near the engine just as the train was starting she got in hurriedly, and it seemed to him that someone inside the compartment had opened the door for her and helped her in But he could not be positive about this as he was a long way off at the time He had seen the deceased and he recognized her as the young person he had observed at Plymouth Dr. Menheniot was the next witness He gave technical evidence as to the cause of the girl's death But as to the circumstances that preceded her fall he could say no more than the guard Yes a little more for he had seen the carriage door opened and the girl stepping out on the footboard Yes in answer to the coroner's question it had seemed to him that someone thrust her out Yet he could not swear that it was so the door had opened suddenly and he had seen her standing on the footboard clinging to the open door If she had meant to commit suicide it appeared to him that she would have leapt at once from the carriage over the embankment the act of standing on the footboard and clinging to the carriage would imply resistance it might mean only hesitation said Heathcote how long do you suppose she remained standing on the footboard hardly a minute perhaps not more than 30 seconds I heard the guard signal for the stopping of the train and then I heard her shriek as she fell it was almost instantaneous The engine was just on the bridge when I first saw her it was in the middle of the bridge when she fell That will give you the best idea as to time No more than 30 seconds said the coroner who knew every yard of the line Is there anyone else who can tell us anything about this poor girl's death? There was no one else Though there were 20 people in the room who had been in the train yesterday evening and who had gone down into the gorge to see that poor crushed form lying amidst ferns and foxgloves, to look curiously at the small white face, the childish lips forever mute in death. No one could tell any more, or indeed as much, about the details of the catastrophe as Dr. Menheniot and the guard, both of whom had seen the fall, whereas no one else happened to have been looking out of window on the near side of the train. "'We will adjourn the inquest for a fortnight,' said Mr. Heathcote presently, after a whispered consultation with the jury. "'The matter is much too mysterious to be dismissed without a very careful investigation. "'A fortnight will give ample time for the friends of the deceased to come forward. "'I have ordered photographs to be taken, with a view to her identification. "'Burial cannot, of course, be delayed beyond the usual time.' there were morbid minds among the spectators who envied the photographer his ghastly office the inquest was felt to have been disappointing revelations had been expected and none had come but mr heathcote had pronounced the case deeply mysterious and there was comfort in the idea that he might know more than he cared to reveal yet awhile. julian willard had driven from penmorval in his own particular dog-cart with one of the finest horses in the district, Bothwell Graham, who was a great walker and altogether independent in his habits, had come across the hills and over cornfields and meadows as straight as the crow flies. The master of Penmorval's smart trap and high-stepping grey were out of sight before Bothwell left the pathway in front of the Vital Spark, where he lingered to talk over the inquest with some of his Bodmin acquaintance the young scotchman was seeped to the eyes in true caledonian pride of race but he had none of the petty pride which makes a man scornful of that portion of the human family which earns its bread by humble avocations he was as friendly with a railway porter or a village tradesman as with the proudest landowner in the country had not two sets of manners for high and low or two distinct modes of speech for gentle and simple the very intonation different for that inferior clay Bothwell had never been able to understand why some of the men he knew talked to a tradesman or a servant Just as they would have spoken to a dog or indeed much less civilly than Bothwell spoke to his dogs He was a staunch conservative in most things, but in this one question of respect for his fellow man He was an unmitigated radical And now he loitered in front of the inn door talking to the railway officials who had appeared at the inquest, and who knew Mr. Graham as a frequent traveller between Bodmin Road and Plymouth. "'There was one thing that didn't come out just now,' said the station-master, "'and that was the girl's ticket. The ticket was for Plymouth, and yet here was the poor young thing going on towards Penzance. Why was she going beyond her first destination, eh, Mr. Graham?' Why did she walk up and down the platform at Plymouth as if she expected someone to meet her there? Why did she get into the train at the last moment just as it was moving out of the station? Don't it seem likely that the individual who was to have met her in the station for which she had taken her ticket Was the same individual that helped her into the train and that he made away with her a husband perhaps who wanted to get rid of a troublesome foreign wife and he tells her to meet him at Plymouth, and he is there to meet her but not on the platform as she expects He is there in hiding in a railway carriage And he beckons her in just as the train is starting when he is least likely to be observed in the bustle and hurry of the start You put your story together very well mr. Chaffey said Bothwell somewhat indifferently as if not deeply interested in the mystery which so enthralled the Bodmin mind you ought to have been a detective, but if this poor girl was murdered and her murderer was in the train How is it that you who are so sharp could not contrive to spot him when you took stock of the passengers? Mr.. Willard gave you the office I remember Murderers do not carry the brand of cane mr. Graham said Edward Heathcote Who had come out of the indoor in, in time to hear Bothwell's speech the assassins of our civilized era are high-handed gentlemen very cunning offence, and have no more mark upon them than you or I. I believe the girl's death was an accident, said Bothwell with a touch of impatience. One of those profound mysteries which are as simple as ABC. She may have been standing by the door admiring the landscape, and the door may have opened as she leant against it. She might recover herself so far as to stand on the footboard for a few seconds, clinging to the handrail, and then she fell and was killed. Not a very plausible explanation my dear graham She was leaning against the door looking at the landscape you suggest and the door opened and let her out How was it then that when Menheniot and the guard saw her she was standing on the footboard with her face to the carriage? Did she swing herself round on the footboard as on a pivot do you suppose? rather a difficult achievement even for an acrobat You need not be so deuced clever retorted Bothwell who seemed altogether out of sorts this afternoon it is not my business to find out how the young woman came by her death No said the coroner, but it is mine, and I mean to do it It won't be the first queer case you've got to the bottom of mr Heathcote said the station master in a tone of respect that amounted almost to reverence You remember poor old uncle Taylor who was found dead at the bottom of the Merry tree shaft over over to Truro? You put a rope round the neck of the scoundrel that killed him, you did. There's not many men clever enough to keep a secret from you. Good night, squire. Good night, Chafee, said Bothwell, moving off. Heathcote followed him. If you are walking home, I'll go part of the way with you, he said. What, are you on foot? asked Bothwell, surprised. What has come of Timor? Timor is in the barn, with his shoes off, getting ready for the cub-hunting. And the rest of your stud oh I have plenty of horses to ride if that's what you mean, but I rather prefer walking in such weather as this How is it you did not drive home in your cousin's dog cart? I? Hate sitting beside another man to be driven said Bothwell shortly there are times too when a fellow likes to be alone If this were intended for a hint mr. Heathcote did not take it He produced his cigar case and offered Bothwell one of his Patagas He was a great smoker and renowned for smoking good tobacco Sir Bothwell accepted the cigar and lighted it, but did not relax the sullen air which he had assumed when mr Heathcote volunteered his company You are not looking particularly well this afternoon Graham said Heathcote when they had walked a little way silently smoking their cigars Oh, there's nothing the matter with me The young man answered carelessly. I was up late, and I had a bad night. That's all You were troubled about yesterday's business suggested the coroner the girl's dead face haunted me, but I had troubles of my own without that You must have seen a good many dead faces in India Yes, I have seen plenty black and white But there are some things against which a man cannot harden himself and sudden death is one of them he relapsed into silence and Heathcote, and he walked side by side for some time without a word the lawyer Contemplating the soldier studying him as if he had been a difficult page in a book Edward Heathcote had spent a good deal of his life in studying living books of this kind His practice in Plymouth had been of a very special character He had been trusted in delicate matters had held the honor of noble families in his keeping had come between father and son husband and wife had been guide philosopher and friend as well as legal adviser his reputation for fine feeling and high moral character the fact of his good birth and ample means had made him the chosen repository of many a family secret which would have been trusted to very few solicitors his name in plymouth was a synonym for honour and his advice shrewd lawyer though he was Always leaned to the side of chivalrous feeling rather than to stern justice Such a man must have had ample occasion for the study of human nature under strange aspects It was therefore a highly trained intellect which was now brought to bear on bothwell graham As he walked silently beside the flowering hedgerows in that quiet Cornish Lane puffing at his cigar and looking straight before him into vacancy Mr Heathcote had seen a good deal of Captain Graham during the year he had lived at Penmorval but he had never seen such a look of care as he saw in the soldier's face today trouble of some kind and of no light or trifling kind was gnawing the man's breast of that fact edward heathcote was assured and there was a strange sinking at his own heart as he speculated upon the nature of that secret trouble which bothwell was trying his best to hide under a show of somewhat sullen indifference as coroner and as lawyer Mr.. Heathcote had made up his mind more than an hour ago that the girl lying at the vital spark had been murdered She had been thrust out of the railway carriage Flung over the line into that dreadful gulf by some person who wanted to make away with her Her murderer was to be looked for in the train had travelled in one of those carriages, had been one among those seemingly innocent travellers, all professing ignorance of the girl's identity, one among those three and twenty people whom Chafee, the station master, had counted and taken stock of at Bodmin Road station, must needs be the murderer. That one, whoever he was, had borne himself so well as to baffle the station master's scrutiny. He had shown no trace of remorse, agitation. Guilty fear he had behaved himself in all points as an innocent man But what if the criminal were one whom the station master knew and Respected a man of mark and standing in the neighborhood whose very name disarmed suspicion Such a man would have passed out of the station unobserved or if any signs of agitation were noted in his manner that Emotion would be put down to kindly feeling the natural pity of a benevolent mind had any hard-handed son of toil a stranger in the land reaper miner seafaring man had such an one as this exhibited signs of discomposure Suspicion would at once have been on the alert But who could suspect mrs. Willard's soldier cousin the idle open-handed gentleman who had made himself everybody's favorite It would have been a wild speculation to suppose because Bothwell's countenance and manner were so charged with secret trouble that his was the arm which thrust that poor girl to her untimely death yet the coroner found himself dwelling upon this wild fancy painful as it was to him to harbour any evil thought of dora Willard's kinsman there were several points which force themselves upon his consideration first bothwell's changed manner to-day his avowal of a troubled night his evident wish to be alone His incivility as one of whose mind was set on edge by painful thoughts Then came the fact of his journey to Plymouth yesterday a journey undertaken suddenly without any Explanation offered to his cousin seemingly purposeless since he had given no reason for absenting himself Stated no business in the town He had gone and returned within a few hours and his journey had been a surprise to his cousin and her husband Thirdly there was his clumsy attempt to explain the girl's death just now in front of the door, His unwillingness to admit the idea of foul play He who excuses himself accuses himself says the proverb Bothwell had tried to account for the catastrophe on the line and in doing so had awakened the coroner's suspicions After all these links in a chain of evidence were of the slightest But Edward Heathcote had set himself to unravel the mystery of the nameless dead and he was determined not to overlook the slenderest thread in that dark web Willard seemed to have quite recovered from the shock of yesterday evening. He said presently. I never saw him looking better than he looked this afternoon Willard is a man made of iron answered Bothwell carelessly I sometimes think there is only one soft spot in his heart and that is his love for my cousin in that he is distinctly human i never saw a more devoted husband i never knew a happier couple bothwell sighed as if this mention of the happiness of others recalled the thought of his own misery at least it was thus that edward heathcote interpreted the sigh completely absorbed in his own cares bothwell had forgotten for the moment that he was talking to the man whom his cousin had jilted in order to marry julian willard the courtship and the marriage had happened while Bothwell was in the East It had never been more to him than a tradition and the tradition was not in his mind when he talked of his cousin's wedded happiness I am glad that it is so very glad said Heathcote earnestly He spoke in all good faith He had loved with so unselfish a love that the welfare of his idol had been ever of more account to him than his own bliss He had renounced her without a struggle since her happiness demanded the sacrifice and she was happy That was the grand point he had paid the price and he had won the reward He had loved with all his heart and strength He had never ceased so to love that wedded life Which to the outside world had seemed a life of domestic happiness had been on his part only a life of resignation He had married a friendless girl who loved him who had betrayed the secret of her love for him unawares in very innocence of inexperienced girlhood He had taken a helpless child to his heart and home because there seemed upon this earth no other available shelter for her And he had done his best to make her happy He had succeeded so well that she never knew that this thoughtful kindness Which wrapped her round as with a balmy atmosphere this boundless benevolence which shone upon her like the Sun was not love She was one of the happiest of women and one of the proudest wives in the West Country And she died blessing him who had made her life blessed And now the gossips were full of pity for the widowers loss and loneliness a poor bereaved creature living in a lonely old grange with a young sister the twin daughters just four years old and an ancient maiden lady who looked after the sister the children the house and the servants and in her own person represented the genius of thrift propriety prudence wisdom and all the domestic virtues people in the neighborhood of bodmin and his old friends at plymouth all thought and talked of mr heathcote as borne down by the weight of his bereavement and all hoped that he would soon marry again the spaniards lay in a valley between bodmin road station and penmorval it lay on bothwell's road to his cousin's house and he had thus no excuse for parting company with the coroner had he been so inclined the old wrought-iron gate between grey granite pillars each crowned with the escutcheon of the heathcoats stood wide open and the rose and myrtle curtained cottage by the gate had as sleepy an air in the summer evening as if it had stood by the gate of the sleeping beauty's enchanted domain. Even the old trees, the great Spanish chestnuts, with their masses of foliage, had a look of having outgrown all reason in a century of repose. No prodigal son had laid the spendthrift's axe to the good old trees around the birthplace of the heathcotes there was only the extent of a wide paddock and a lawn between the hall door and that grand old gateway and the house though substantial and capacious hardly pretended to the dignity of a mansion it was long and low and rambling a house of many small rooms queer winding passages innumerable doors and windows and low heavily timbered ceilings a house in which strange visitors and their servants were given to seeing ghosts and hearing unearthly noises of funereal significance albeit the family had jogged on quietly enough from generation to generation without any interference from the spirit world people coming from brand-new houses in earl's court or turnham green protested that the spaniards must be haunted and shuddered every time the mice scampered behind the paneling or the wind sighed amidst the branches of those leafy towers that girdled lawn and meadow Bothwell thought that mr. Heathcote would leave him at the gate of the Spaniards Good night he said somewhat shortly I'll go on to Penmorville with you and hear what impression the inquest made upon Willard said the other It's not half past seven yet your cousin will be able to spare me a few minutes before dinner Bothwell walked on without a word ten minutes brought them to the gates of penmorval by far the lordlier domain with a history that was rich in aristocratic traditions but that ancient race for which penmorval had been built for whose sons and daughters it had grown in grandeur and dignity as the centuries rolled along of these there remained no more than the echo of vanished renown they were gone verily like a tale that is told and the parvenu financier the man who had grown rich by his own intellect and his own industry, naturally a very inferior personage, reigned in their stead. Penmorval seemed not quite so dead asleep as Heathcote Grange, alias the Spaniards, in the sweet stillness of the summer evening. Bothwell and his companion heard voices, women's voices, familiar and pleasant to the ears of both. Mrs. Willard was strolling in the avenue with a young lady by her side a girl in a white gown and large leghorn hat tall slight Graceful of form and fair of face a girl who gave a little cry of pleased surprise at seeing Heathcote I Was just rushing home Edward she said for I fear I should keep you waiting for dinner Indeed Hilda then I can only say that your idea of rushing is my idea of sauntering her brother answered, smiling at the girlish face, as he shook hands with Mrs. Willard. "'What did Mr. Willard think of the inquest?' he asked. "'You have seen him, I suppose.' "'Only for a minute as he drove by to the house, while Hilda and I were walking in the avenue. "'Why, Bothwell, how fagged and ill you look!' exclaimed Dora to her cousin. "'Only bored,' answered Bothwell, which was not complimentary to the companion of his long walk but you look positively exhausted poor fellow pursued dora pityingly why didn't you come back in the dog-cart there was room for you i wanted to be alone and i wanted company said heathcote laughing so i inflicted my society upon an unwilling companion very bad manners no doubt i'm afraid you got the worst of the bargain muttered bothwell with a sudden look at which hilda's blue eyes opened wide with wonder "'Do you know, Mr. Heathcote, an idle life does not agree with my cousin?' said Dora. "'I never know what it is to be weary of Penmorval or the country round, "'but for the last three or four weeks Bothwell has behaved as if he hated the place "'and could find neither rest nor amusement within twenty miles of us. "'He is perpetually running off to Plymouth or to London. "'I wish women would take to reading their dictionaries "'instead of cramming their heads with other women's novels.' exclaimed Bothwell savagely for then perhaps they might have some idea of the meaning of words when you say I run up to London Perpetually Dora I suppose you mean that I have been there twice on urgent business by the way within the last five weeks and To Plymouth at least a dozen times protested Dora all I can say is that you are my idea of perpetual motion I Know you are hardly ever at home mr. Graham said Hilda supporting her friend They strolled towards the house as they talked and halfway along the Avenue. They met the master of Penmorval, Correctly attired in sober evening dress with a light overcoat worn loosely above his faultless black How do you do Heathcote do you know Dora that it is ten minutes to eight? You'll stop and dine with us, of course added willard cordially you refused last night But now Hilda is here and you have no excuse for going home. I Only came to afternoon tea said Hilda And You and my wife have been gossiping from five o'clock until now Deepest mystery of social life what two women can find to talk about for three mortal hours in the depths of a rural seclusion like this a mystery to a man who cannot imagine that women either think or read Retorted Dora taking her husband's arm you men have a fixed idea that your wives and sisters have only two subjects of conversation gowns and servants Of course you will stay and dine mr. Heathcote. I am not going to dress for dinner So please don't look at your frock coat as if that were an insuperable obstacle You and Hilda are going to stop whether you like it or not You know we always like to be here said Hilda in her low sweet voice She stole a shy little look at Bothwell as if wondering what he thought of the matter, but Bothwell's countenance was inscrutable Hilda was pained, but not surprised by his manner he had changed to her so strangely within the last few months He who half a year ago had been so kind so attentive She was not angry She was not vain enough to wonder that a man should begin by caring for her a little and then leave off caring all at once and relapse into absolute indifference She supposed that such fickleness was a common attribute of the superior sex they all went to the house and through a glass door into the large low drawing-room where the butler immediately announced dinner The two ladies had only time to take off their hats before they went into the dining-room They were both in white and there was a grace in Dora Willard's simple gown a cluster of roses half hidden by the folds of an Indian muslin fichu a swan-like throat rising from a haze of delicate lace Which was more attractive than the costliest toilet ever imported from Paris to be the wonder of a court ball Yes, she was of all women Edward Heathcote had ever known the most gracious the most beautiful Those seven years of happy married life had ripened her beauty had given a shade of thoughtfulness to the matron's dark eyes the low wide brow the perfect mouth but had not robbed the noble countenance of a single charm the face of the wife was nobler than the face of the girl it was the face of a woman who lived for another Rather than for her own happiness the face of a woman superior to all feminine frivolity and yet in all things most womanly Edward Heathcote sighed within himself as he took his place beside his hostess in the subdued light of the old paneled room a warm light from lamps that hung low on the table under rose-colored shades Umbrella-shaped spreading a luminous glow over silver and glass and flowers, and leaving the faces of the guests in rosy shadow. he sighed as he thought how sweet life would have been for him had this woman remained true to her first love. for she had loved him once, eight years ago, they too had clasped hands, touched lips as affianced lovers, he could never forget what she had been to him. Or what she might have been He sat at her husband's table in all loyalty of soul in staunch friendship He would have cut his heart out rather than debased himself or Dora by one guilty thought Yet he could but remember these things have been The two ladies left almost immediately after dinner and Bothwell sauntered out into the garden directly afterwards not to rejoin them as he would have done a few months ago But to smoke the cigar of solitude in a path beside a crumbling old red wall and a long narrow border of hollyhocks tall gigantic yellow crimson white and pink There were fruit trees on the other side of the wall which was supported with tremendous buttresses at intervals of twenty feet or so and about wall and buttress climbed clematis and passionflower flower jasmine yellow and white and the great crimson trumpets of the begonia the banker and the lawyer sat silently for a few minutes julian Willard occupied in the choice of a cigar from a case which he had first offered to his guest and then edward heathcote asked him what he had thought of the inquest i thought it altogether unsatisfactory answered Willard. you did your best to thrash out a few facts but those fools of railway people had nothing to tell worth hearing everybody knows that the poor creature fell off the train or was thrown off what we want to find out is whether there was foul play in the business it is my belief that there was said heathcote looking at him fixedly in the dim roseate light almost as unsatisfactory for such a scrutiny as the changeful glow of the fire and mine answered Willard, and so strong is my conviction upon this point that i stopped at the post-office on my way home and telegraphed to my old friend Joe distin asking him to come down and help us to solve the mystery Do you mean the criminal lawyer? Whom else should I mean he and I were schoolfellows I have asked him to stop at Penmorville while he carries on his investigation End of chapter 2